Hello and welcome to Building Brand You, the show where we help you to accelerate your success, getting you more clients, more revenue, more business and more opportunities by unlocking your greatest asset, you. My name is Kim Hamer and I'm an international business coach and serial entrepreneur. This podcast is designed for you to help you unlock what you already have and to give you a whole host of tools and techniques that can help you to accelerate your success by building your own brand you. Hello everyone and welcome to this episode of Building Brand You. Today I am delighted to introduce another special guest. Nathan Littleton is a marketer, speaker, and author who specializes in helping businesses to grow by attracting and winning more customers. Each year, he sends more than a million emails on behalf of his clients, and his proven track record has led him to working with leading brands, including Microsoft, Virgin Care, and the BBC. His mission is to give businesses the insights and tools to take their email campaigns from good to great. I hope you enjoy my conversation with the wonderful Nathan Littleton. Hello, Nathan. How are you today? Hi, Kim. I am great. Yeah, I've had a a lovely weekend and I'm ready to kick off the week. Brilliant. Well, thank you for joining us on Building Brand You. I am delighted to have you here. Um, The way I like to start off with all of my um, guest conversations is just to find out a little bit about you, you know, who's Nathan Littleton? What's what's your story? What are you about? So anywhere you want to take that is entirely up to you. Sure, absolutely. So uh, I, I started my first business when I was 12 years old. I was building websites from my bedroom, which really at that time was my way of being able to earn some money doing something that I was good at and what was essentially a hobby. Uh, so I'd been building websites myself with jokes and games and funny stories, things like that. Uh, and realized that there were other people who were doing those same things, but they were earning very decent money from it. So I thought, well, I could do that. There was plenty out there, even at that stage back in 2003, that was now, where there were blogs, there were videos, uh, not so many videos back then, but there were certainly plenty of resources out there that could show you how to take what would have been a hobby and creating websites with games and jokes on and actually turn that into a business where you could create websites for businesses. So that was what I went out and did. Um, I remember even being chaperoned by my parents to sales meetings and things like that, which is, yeah, seems crazy even now looking looking back on that. Um, but it was really that. It was an opportunity to be able to earn some money from doing something that I really enjoyed doing. Uh, that's developed into the business that I have now. It's, it's not websites anymore. It's email marketing, but it's still in that same space. And I've never had... Uh, a real job, <laughs> uh, so to speak. And uh, yeah, even today, my mum still asks me when I'm going to get a real job. <laughs> <laughs> and so take me back a little bit, 12 years old, not many of us um, are that enterprising or entrepreneurial. But apart from the, the desire to perhaps earn some your own money, did you have any sort of role models or people you thought, oh, I could do that? Or was this something that you you kind of thought, oh, well, I'll just have a go at this. 
I think it did just come from myself, really. I mean, my my dad had run a business in the past that didn't go particularly well. Um, so he wasn't a role model in that sense. But yeah, there wasn't really anyone around me who had owned or run businesses. Uh, it just seemed like a good idea for me. And it seemed to fit with my skills. I really enjoyed the kind of enterprising side of things. Even before that, I'd sold CDs at, at school and I'd sold my old toys at car boot sales and things like that. So there was always a little glimmer of something in there, I think, even back to when I was seven or eight. Uh, it just seemed to really fit with me and the things that I wanted to do. And if I could earn some money in the process, then then that was great. Uh, I do feel that now there are more people of that age who are more enterprising, who are looking to start businesses. And it's probably easier now than it's ever been to be able to do that. Uh, and I used to speak in schools about this. And some people would say, well, do you not feel like it kind of waters down your story a little bit? The fact that so many people are doing that now at such a young age and absolutely not. The fact that people are going out and doing that, I think, is a wonderful thing. It's easier to start a business now than it's ever been. There are industries, entire industries that didn't exist back when I was 12 that do exist now. And I think it's wonderful. Uh, more power to them. Yeah, I, I completely agree with you. Having, I was just a tad older than 12 when I became an entrepreneur just you know, four years ago. <laughs> <laughs> um, but one of the things that, that I often uh, speak about, I'm a governor at a school, and one of the things I talk about is how do we bring enterprise and entrepreneurship in as an option for young people? It's very driven still, I think, to um, going on to higher education, getting a job, fitting in with that. Um, and I, it's really inspiring, I think, to see when organisations and schools are promoting and giving young people the chance to actually try some of this stuff on, um, see whether it really is for them. I mean, you know, there's a lot more of that now, but I think there probably could be a lot even even more. Yeah, I think that applies to to any skill or discipline or hobby that you could end up being really good at. You never know what you're going to be really good at unless you actually try it. So unless you're trying several different things to see what you enjoy and where your skills actually lie, who knows? I mean, I could be a world famous pianist if I had only learned to play the piano when I was a kid. I don't know. No idea. <laughs> yeah. And um, so were you juggling, obviously at 12 you were, but, you know, juggling, you know, your own business and school and, and that sort of thing. You know, your, your parents were obviously very um, supportive of, of everything you were doing. Yeah, they were. And, and I felt very proud even at that time that I, I was finding that I was needing to ask them for money less because I was I was obviously earning my own money, uh, which I'm sure they'd have enjoyed. But yeah, they were very supportive uh, of what I was doing. And yeah, it was a bit of a tricky balance in the first instance to, to balance running a business with my schoolwork, particularly as I was still completely new to the business world, if you like. So trying to find the balance of managing my time between those two things was tricky to start with. And there were certain times where my schoolwork did slip and then I was able to find a balance and it worked okay. But I think as I got to my A-levels and was at the point where I needed to apply for university, I did that. I got the A-levels I wanted. I got a place at university, but needed to decide essentially whether I was going to take that. Uh, I didn't go to university in the end because I figured... I didn't want to go to university knowing that I'd need to give up the business to give it my full attention and then wonder whether I could have made it. And I think the, the approach that I then wanted to take really was to 
go out and start the business, see if I could make it, do what I wanted to do, but then actually go back to university and study something that I want to study rather than something I think is going to give me the best job prospects, because those two would have been different subjects for me. Uh, and I still intend to do that. I mean, I'm always learning now. I haven't been back to university, but I'm sure I'll do that one day for something I really want to do. Mm, mm. It's, a, it's a great way of flipping that on its head too, isn't it? You know, 15, 16, very young to be choosing what you think you're going to enjoy and do for the rest of your your life. Um, so, you know, going out and giving some stuff a go and then going back and saying, oh, well, you know, this yeah. is the thing I really like or this is the thing I think will really further what I'm doing. Um, so have you found, you said you hadn't been back um, to university, but what what have you, you know, you've been in, been in business since 2003, for goodness sake. You must have learned a thing or two. <laughs> so what, what were some of the... Uh, I guess the, the big learnings, um, particularly, I guess, once you left school and went full time into the business. Most of what I was trying to learn at that point was around website design and web development to be a better web designer for what I wanted to do then, which was making making websites. And because it's an area that moves so quickly, you you really had to stay on top of, of what the current trends were in terms of design, but new technologies and things like that. Um, but the longer I went on, the more I realized that most of my uh, learning needed to be in the area of business and in the area of marketing. And I think that just came with the fact that I didn't really care whether it was websites as a business that I was running. I would put my hand to anything if the business opportunity was right. So that's where I started to see myself more as a business person and an entrepreneur rather than a freelance web designer or someone who built web websites for money. So that was a bit of a shift in mindset. And uh, in in the time since then, it really has been just development development in any area of business that I can find to be able to be a better entrepreneur. Hmm. Being an entrepreneur is such a, a like a broad skill set, isn't it? Um, and there's stuff we love to do, and there's stuff that you know we have to do, but perhaps not so much fun. So along the way, how have you balanced the stuff? you love and are really great at with the with the stuff that's perhaps not so fun well you're absolutely right no one goes into business because they're dying to do a tax return for example <laughs> absolutely not and then that that certainly wasn't me either um it's really I, i've just spent a, a huge amount of time really and i do it once a quarter finding out where are the areas within my business that either i don't enjoy or i'm just plain not good at so if someone else can do it and it will take them less time, I'll quite happily pay them the money to be able to do that. And my business has taken several different structures over the years. I've had an office, I've employed people. That wasn't really the business that I wanted to run. Uh, it, it went okay, but I'm pretty confident that I can build the business that I want to build with what is essentially a freelance team. There are thousands of people out there who have specialist skills that you can pay a monthly retainer to, where you can take on on a project basis rather than needing to have uh, employees that are sat in an office. And particularly now where we're at with uh, more people working from home right now, I think that's come even more to the fore than it ever has done before. Mm. And, and given that, that, that nature, that gig economy piece, I think, is changing, what are your thoughts on how do you, you make sure you, you get not just the best team, but a good consistent team? That, because that's, you know, your last, you're only ever as good as your, your last job or your last project, aren't you? And if you're working with a freelance team, um, there's, not this, there's perhaps not the same consistency 
that there is when you're employing people. That's true, but anyone who's in a freelance team, I think, should be uh, treated with the same respect and and the same feeling as being part of that team as though they were employed. So just because uh, a team member is freelance, they'll still be in on the team meetings and we still work together as a team as though as though they were employed. And I think that's important so that they can understand how their um, their efforts and their role fits within the wider business. So that's something that I picked up from a client I was working with a few years ago where I was part of that freelance team for them and thought, I can see how this works. I can see how everyone's buying into the same ideas that probably wouldn't have otherwise happened if uh, if they were just seen as individuals contributing to something uh, and it was just their small part. Mm-hmm. And do you, um, do you tend to work with certain um, industries or certain types of businesses, or is it really quite broad and global? So with what I do now, it is email marketing and email newsletter management. It does tend to be with speakers, trainers, and coaches. That's where that's where I've been working mostly over the last three or four years. But there are there are lots and lots of industries, wild and wonderful <laughs> industries that you never really uh, see a fit compared to the other industries that I work with. But I've worked with dental practices, cheese manufacturers. I mean, there's there's all kinds of things in there. And as long as they have a need for what I offer and I can see the value that I can deliver for them, uh, then yeah, it's we can always find a fit. I think you and I will be great friends. Cheese manufacturing. Love it. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, love it. Um, We do work in some, when you look, when I look back, I think of some of the industries I've worked in, um, you know, my first job um, when I was still at school was at a 10 pin bowling center. I put away the shoes and I taught people how to bowl. Like, you know, it's just, you know, it was such a random thing that no one would think about. So you mentioned um, the particularly the the speakers, uh, coaches, trainers avenue, the focus of your business. And we we met through the Professional Speaking Association, and you know you're on the board there. I've seen you involved in, in some of the meetings, and I've seen you speak particularly. So tell me a little bit about your involvement with the Professional Speaking Association and and what you do there, and 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 why just just why you're involved. Absolutely. So I joined the PSA as a member back in 2012 or 2013. uh, And it's an organisation that has given me a huge amount. Um, I've tried to do my best to contribute to it over the years as well. And it's a couple of years ago that I joined the board as communications director, which is obviously a good fit with with what I do within my regular business. Uh, So I handle all of the member communications. So anything to do with how we speak to our members and demonstrate the value, let them know what's happening, uh, kind of comes under my remit. But the way the board works within the PSA as well is that it isn't just your kind of discipline that you're working on. There are board decisions that need to be made that, you know, it's it's very much a joint effort in that respect. And the reason I do it is because the PSA has given a huge amount to me. This is my opportunity, if you like, to be able to give back and and hopefully make it uh, a much bigger and much better organisation for the benefit of all the members who are there. Uh, I don't think that's likely to change anytime soon. I'm sure they'll be pleased to hear that, (laughs) anybody who's listening. Um, So what... uh... What things you said a couple of years ago you you joined the board. So what was the biggest shift for you in actually joining the board of an organization versus working in your own business? 
Well, it, it, it has to it has to be the right fit with the business you have. I've been regional president for one of the regions within the PSA as well that I did for a year. Uh, I think it was about four years ago, uh, which I enjoyed doing. Uh, you run the regional meetings, you bring in the speakers, uh, that sort of thing. And that was the, the first kind of taste of it, meant that I could give back to the PSA in, in a small way. And in terms of joining the board, because it felt like it was the right fit for my business, it made sense to be able to do that. It's still an opportunity to be able to give back. It's still an opportunity to be able to help the PSA to grow and to become a better organization for the speakers and trainers that are within it. Uh, but also I, I would like to be national president one day. I'd like to take the organization in a direction where my theme can become a legacy, if you like, so that I've made a contribution within that presidential year and hopefully the organization is much better for it. Mm. So it's that whole sort of legacy minded piece what what can what as you said what can I contribute but what will um outstay my time you know what, what will that's exactly it's it. almost like outstaying your welcome but outstaying your time yeah. with the organization for yeah absolutely to to leave a lasting impression that you know it's yeah I think that's an important thing not just with the board role and the PSA but that's what we should be doing as certainly speakers and trainers, but what are we doing and what is the legacy of that? Is it to is it to help young people? Is it to help charities? Is it to help just your your colleagues and other people within your industry? I think they're important questions to ask. Mm, mm. And is there a you, you're talking about the the, spe- the professional speaking association? Uh, is there you know is there a particular group? Uh, of, of people or, uh, I guess, disaffected people in the world that um, you're particularly passionate about as outside um, the PSA? Outside of the PSA, I've always wanted to, to help kids. And it, it, the, the best way that I can do that, I think, is around entrepreneurship and business skills. Uh, so I've, I've spoken in schools hundreds of times. I've, I've uh, done one-to-one mentoring with, with students at schools as well. Um, not all of them disaffected in that sense, but those who are looking for an opportunity or even aren't sure of what the next opportunity might be. Um, like you said earlier, I think being at an age of 15, 16, 17, and then needing to make a decision for the rest of your life is a pretty tricky thing to do uh, and to even contemplate. So if I can play a small part in helping them to make that decision on whether running a business might be for them or whether going into the world of work might be right for them, then yeah, that's the small part I think I can play. Mm, mm. that's interesting we might be having a separate conversation after this about speaking in schools given I'm a school governor so (laughs) look out I'll be back Um, so my my next question is really a little bit more going back to what you said earlier about your business has morphed from website design and probably through a whole lot of other things to email marketing and and e-newsletter management so you know tell me a little bit about what you do now and how that came out of the original website design. Absolutely. So I did some small things around email marketing probably 11 or 12 years ago because naturally, if you have a website, you're going to need a way of being able to stay in touch with those people. So there were small things that I was doing there. I'd created uh, quite a unique style of email design to go along with that, which Uh, The kind of big break for that, if you like, was selling into franchise businesses. So this was a personalized style of email template where if we could uh, position the value of it with the franchisor and say, hey, here's what we've come up with for your business. If we could get their buy-in, then you've got 
uh, a ready-made system there to be able to sell to franchisees. So they buy the email marketing system, they buy the email template, and everything is branded to them with their photograph, their name, and their region of their franchise, if that was appropriate. So they had what felt like a completely personalized product, but the margins on it were really, really high because we'd just be tweaking an existing design with their photograph. So it's a, a nice, profitable business that, that, that came out of that. And that kind of opened my eyes, I think, a bit more into why email marketing was working because I was seeing the results that they were getting. I was getting great results using email marketing in my own business too. And it became an area, I think, where I could make a big difference and be something unique within the industry. So there were lots of areas to be able to develop in, in something that had been around for a very, very, very long time, but was also moving quite quickly. Whereas with website design, I didn't quite feel like I had as much to be able to contribute to do something different and unique. So now the work that I do is around helping people to use email marketing to be able to stay in touch with their audience. And the kind of example that I give with this is that we are speaking to lots of people all the time about potential sales opportunities. We'll be having sales meetings, we'll be having networking events and things like that, speaking to lots of people, but not all of those opportunities that we create are genuine ones. So then if you fast forward to six months or 12 months, they haven't decided to work with you, but who are they going to choose in that six months or 12 months when they do need what you offer? So are they going to go to their little black book of contacts or go to LinkedIn for a recommendation from one of their connections? Or are they going to go to the person who's been staying in touch with them with valuable information about that subject area on a consistent basis? And that one wins every time in my book because we have a service to offer. Some of the products that we sell, some of the services that we sell come with a pounds and pence amount or a dollar and cents amount that we ask for in return. But there, are, there is extra value that we can give. We're giving free products away. And the price that the consumer pays is their email address and the willingness to continue the conversation afterwards. So it's, it's a, an important thing, I think, to stay top of mind with those audiences. Mm-hmm. And one of the things, uh, you know, I had a go at email marketing and one of the things I found quite challenging in the first instance was developing the list because you can have a lovely email, but, you know, if you've only got 10 people to send it to, then it's not really very monetizable, is it? So so tell me about that, you know, that starting point of, of the list. Well, you're right to point that out. I mean, when I when I talk about email marketing on stage, I talk about three pillars to, to using email marketing successfully. So the first of those is building a list, building a list of people who, when you send an email, they recognize your name when it lands in their inbox and they have a positive feeling associated with it. And I make that distinction because, well, you could go out and buy a list. There are data brokers out there. There are plenty of places you can get access to data, some of it legal, some of it not quite so ethical or, or moral in that sense. But there's no point in doing that if the feeling that would be associated with it is a negative one. I've received something that I didn't ask for. So we're looking to build a list of people who will recognize you and they will want to receive your emails. So you're right. The building a list is the first stage. Then we serve our list with <clears throat> the educational content that we have. And then we find the opportunities within that list to be able to make sales. And building the list is a tricky thing, but it can be a bit of a chicken and egg problem in that okay, so I've got 10 people on a list. Is that enough to be able to send an email? It's not going to get a great result if there's so few people on the list. So I'll try and build the list. But then the people who were on the list earlier, they haven't heard from you for a month, two months, three months. So I would generally suggest that even if you don't feel like you have a big list, just start now. It will give you a chance there to be able to 
uh, flex your muscles in creating the content that you want to send out and at least have an experiment. But then the people who are on the list already, they've heard from you. They're hearing from you regularly. And at the same time, you work alongside that with building your list. And the best way of being able to do that, I think, is with lead magnets. So a lead magnet is very simply something that you give away in exchange for an email address. So more often than not, that will be an educational resource in the form of a, uh, a PDF ebook. It will be a checklist or a template, maybe an audio download or a video, something of value that's related to your area of expertise that you can give away in exchange for that email address. And that's probably something that for all your audience, they'll already be familiar with. But my challenge, I think, there would be to raise your game, I guess, in terms of the content that you're creating, because it's too easy to create something that we think will fit the bill, but so are hundreds, if not thousands of other people who are doing exactly the same thing as you. So we want to create better content that is of genuine high value. Mm, I think I think you're absolutely right to say you know, the people listening uh, have probably heard of the term leaf magnet. Uh, they may not have known what it is, so thank you for that. <laughs> um, but but I think you're, you're right. There's, it has to be useful and interesting and of value and, and something that people, that your audience, not just people generally, but if we're talking about being targeted, something that your audience will find valuable and will want to hear from you. I guess is the is the the key, and maybe starting with a list of ten. Just going back to the um, original comment, maybe starting with a list of ten is a great way to test some stuff out and ask them, invite them in to be part of that that testing, and so they feel part of something at the grassroots. So, uh, how is that something that that works, or am I completely off beast here? No, I think that's right. And I would hazard a guess that if you have a list of 10, they're going to be 10 people who will be receptive to hearing what you have to say. They're either your best clients, they might be people within your industry that you know really, really well. It is an opportunity there to be able to test things. It is an opportunity to be able to ask them the question of what is it you want to hear from me? What are the challenges that you have right now that I could provide a small solution to? What are the opportunities you have right now that you could do with a little bit of help with to get over the line? So often we're, we're looking, I guess, at the resources that are out there and we're trying to follow somebody else's model when actually the common sense approach would be to simply ask people what they want, give them what they've said they want and then do what we've said we're going to do. <laughs> it's quite simple. Uh, we don't need to follow somebody else's formula because someone has said, I got uh, I got better results from my emails by doing this, this, or this. Yes, we want best practice. Yes, we want the things that are going to help us to improve the results that we're getting. But we can be human with this as well. I'm a big believer in, in the uh, adage, if you like, that we systemize the process and we humanize the exceptions. So yes, there are things we can put into place to, to automate things and to make a process that works for us, but we also have to humanize the exceptions to those rules and yeah, be more human, ask the questions that are going to give us the results for our own audiences that will get us the best results. Mm -hmm. I think that that's a, a, a great balance to think about I mean when I was when I started I did my my newsletter for about a year and what was interesting is that I got sort of like a, a format and a, like furniture in mm -hmm. place if you like but I found it too difficult to keep thinking of the content and I'm sure I am not alone in this I think um, there are many of us out there who get inspired and set ourselves up on 
something and say, right, I'm going to have this email and it's going to go out every month or whatever it is. And six months later, we're struggling to either find stuff or even send it out. So, you know, I imagine that's quite common and you see that quite a lot. You're absolutely right. And the consistency is the most important part, but also probably the hardest thing to keep up because you're absolutely right. We'll, we'll get inspired and we'll create a grand plan for sending out, let's say a weekly newsletter, which is a, a reasonably big commitment to be able to put something out there weekly. And we don't always factor in whether we're going to be able to achieve that when we're at our busiest, because presumably when we started it, we had a gap where we could put some thought into actually making it work. Uh, but then we do get busy. So the consistency is often the thing that drops. And if you can set yourself up and manage expectations for your own readers and your own subscribers, then you you do stand to, to get better results from it because you can keep it consistent as you go forward. And it is bearing in mind when you're at your busiest, are you still going to have time to do this? Is weekly still going to be the right uh, right frequency for that? And the content that you're putting in there, are you having to produce a podcast and a video and a blog and something else and something else to be able to get the newsletter out? Or is it content that sits on its own? If you already have a content marketing plan in place where you're already putting together videos and podcasts and things, and they're working really, really well, then the newsletter should be easy because part of the the content that goes in it is then just going to be pointing people in the direction of the other things that you're creating. We don't have to start from scratch every single time. Ah, okay. So when you start from scratch, it's, it's almost like, I don't know how, how long is a piece of string for a new person? Um, what do you, what's the best place for someone to start thinking about? If they're, if they're thinking about an email newsletter, you know, there's, there's, warms and how much should I put in and how long should it be and all of that sort of thing I mean what's the best way what are the best some of the best questions to ask about uh, apart from what can I do when I'm at my busiest how, how do we navigate all of those all of those questions a great starting point would be what regular content do I already have so if you're already in a pattern that you're consistently producing a video that should be your your starting point is your video and if you give yourself a structure where your newsletter has sections, that means you're filling in the blanks and the content becomes much easier to write when you're filling in the blanks rather than starting from a blank screen uh, staring back at you each time. So have a look at the content you already have out there. Create a structure that is going to be something you can deliver consistently and regularly, but also find where the opportunities are for you to be able to, I guess, create content that has higher perceived value than it it maybe has the time to write, if that makes sense. So for example, I don't get offended in any way whatsoever if my subscribers don't read top to bottom the newsletters that I send out. That's okay. As long as they take one part of it that they can consume at that time and take value from and then associate my name with it, then it served its purpose of me being top of mind. They're still going to take value from it. It just means that maybe they didn't have time to read it top to bottom. For some people, they might prefer to watch a video than to read a 800 word blog post. That's okay. That makes sense. So that's where the structure starts to come in that you can create content that has a variety of different media and also fits the different amounts of time that somebody might have. So a quick tip is quite underrated, I think, in terms of newsletter content that you can create. It might take you 30 seconds or a minute to write it, but the value that it will give could be much higher than, than uh, the time you've spent to actually put it together. 
Great tip. So tell me a little bit more about but why email marketing versus why would someone invest their time and, and money perhaps in that versus the myriad of other marketing and visibility tools that are actually out there uh, for them? Why do you think why do you think email marketing is still of value? It's been around for a long time. And some people, you know, quite challengingly say, is email marketing dead? Well, you're right in that there are lots of things out there. And I think the reason it, it still thrives is because where other ones have come and gone, email has remained a constant throughout that entire time. And there's a few reasons why I think it's still as important now, if not more important than it ever has been, is that it is the best way in terms of the time and return on financial investment that you can make of reaching a large number of people in a short space of time. You have control over the majority of people within that list seeing your content because it isn't at the mercy of one business. And the example I give with that is it's it's probably six or seven years ago that lots of business owners made a huge amount of effort into generating likes for their Facebook pages or generating followers for their Twitter profiles. It then doesn't take very long for one business, i.e. Facebook, to make a change to their algorithm that means your posts no longer get seen by that audience you thought you were building up. So unless you're then paying for ads, your posts just won't get seen. And that's a bit of a challenge, isn't it? Because you've put a huge amount of time into building an audience that then ceases to be an audience that you can control. So with email marketing, although there have been the odd change, so here in Europe, there's been GDPR that was seen as this huge change to email marketing and would mean that uh, maybe it wouldn't work in the same way that it did. That never really panned out that way. And I think that's because those businesses and those people who were using email marketing in the right way anyway, that is asking people to join a list, giving them what they've said they're going to give them and continuing to stay in touch. Well, they weren't any fault with GDPR anyway. They were already doing the right thing. And I see GDPR as a good thing because it then just means that people are sending to people who've actually asked to be sent to. That's an important distinction to make as well. So it isn't at the mercy of one business. It continues to be effective, arguably more effective now than it has been even two or three years ago. And I can't see that changing anytime soon, but also it isn't at the mercy of one business. That's the, a key distinction, I think, that means we have more control over it than we perhaps do with other tools. Mm, it's a great, great point. So, so talk to me a little bit about um, outsourcing. You know, if I wanted to outsource my email marketing, my newsletter, I mean, this is something you do for people. So uh, tell me um, a little bit about, you know, what that involves, um, how you work with your, with your clients and, and some of the, the pros and cons, I guess, of outsourcing, or outsourcing versus do it yourself. I suppose for your audience, we've been talking about email marketing for a little bit now. There's probably going to be a, a niggling thing going on in their mind that means they're either going to do it or they're not going to do it. And for those who are thinking mm, it's maybe not the right time, it could be that it feels like it's too technical. It feels like there's too much of a learning curve to be able to do it. I would suggest it's probably easier than you think, but I appreciate some people aren't as technical as maybe they'd like to be or as they think they could be. So maybe that's a reason to outsource in the same way as it is with any other discipline within our businesses. If there's something we feel we either, uh, can't learn or don't want to learn, that's maybe something we should look to hire an expert to be able to do, whether it's email marketing, bookkeeping, anything anything like that. 
So that would be the first thing. And also, if you want the best results from it, if you see the value in email marketing as a way of growing your business, then you want the best results for it. You want the best return on your investment. So I think hiring an expert to be able to do that, someone who does send a, a number of emails each each week, each month, each year, that means they know what works in terms of subject lines and the content that is going out there. That's a reason to do it. And if the investment fits with your business, then it works. Some of the reasons you might not want to do that is if you don't feel either a confidence in the provider that's giving it to you, or if you want full control over the process and the content that is going out there. I think we have to have content that is going out in our voice and with our brand identity. And that's why for most of the clients that I work with, I insist that they do write the content. So I will take what is essentially a Word document and I take care of everything else, managing the lists, getting that uh, that text and content out into a full email campaign. And the reason I do that is because, firstly, they'll know their area of expertise far better than I can. I'm sure, I could research and I could write something, but it's not going to be as good as what they'd be able to create themselves in terms of their expertise. But also, I think the brand voice is a really important part of it. I think it has to come across as though, Someone's reading the same things they'd expect to hear if they were sat in front of them. And that's something that's harder to replicate. I use external copywriters for some of my own stuff, and they do a pretty good job, but it's it's never going to feel like it's my voice. And I think the voice is an important part of it because we want it to feel like a conversation. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And for such a, a, a long time, so I do all my all my content, all my copy, that sort of thing for my brand, but I also do it for other businesses. Mm-hmm. Uh, and often the thing is, is that people don't know I've done it for another business because yeah. there's a lot of, there is, you're right, there's a lot of effort and time in making sure you do the research about what that voice is for that business. And then writing in that tone and almost like shaving you out of, of the process okay. so that you actually sound like like the person you're writing for. And and it's not, you know, I, I select clients to do that for. I won't just do that for anybody. There has to be a fit. Um, so I'm a big advocate of the brand voice. And, and it is hard to outsource. It is hard to outsource. So uh, how do you, if people come to you and they haven't quite got that voice sort of right yet? Um, Do you work with them to to try and shape that and hone that for themselves? Yeah, that's part of our early conversations is what, what is the impression that you want to put out there? What's the value that you want to give? And how can we get this into a format that's going to be easy for you to write, but also easy for your reader to digest? And as I said earlier, if they only take one small part, but they associate my client's name with it and see it as valuable, then it served its purpose of helping them to be top of mind. So it, it is all part of the conversation that we want to be creating content that people actually look forward to reading. And I think it, it's happened a few times now where I'll, I'll receive an email from a client that they've forwarded on from one of their readers. And the key words in there are, yours is one of the few newsletters that I actually read. And I really like that. It shows that we're doing something good, but obviously it fits in with the fact that there are perceptions over newsletters. There are perceptions when you see a sign-up box on a website that you'll enter your email address and you're going to receive a newsletter or some form of email in return. And generally, the impression isn't very good. We're not expecting the content to be good and of high quality, which is why people unsubscribe from content that they don't want to receive. Completely get that. 
So if your content can strike a balance where people actually look forward to receiving it, then anything you think about email marketing and what place it has right now is you can kind of ignore that because the content that you're sending is genuinely look forward to. Mm. And and I guess the, the the thing for me also in that just thinking about the things I respond to are the things that I I get a nugget from. You're right. I don't I don't read very many from top to bottom. I'll scan it and then go, oh, that's interesting. You know, oh, I might read that article where the link is, or I like that little soundbite, or something like like that. So um, I read. Uh, I know you you work with Jeremy Nicholas. Yes. Uh, and um, he was our last featured guest on this oh, podcast. Great. So <laughs> there's a nice little partnership going on there. But he his is one of the emails that I read from top to bottom. Some parts I will scan, some parts I will deep dive. Just depends on what's relevant. And I think that's something to, to think about, isn't it? That it, it's not that everybody has to read everything. There just has to be a nugget, one nugget in there for everybody, even if it's a different nugget. I guess that's it. And the, th- the thing that one person gets from it will be different to what someone else gets from it too. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. So what's coming up for you over the, over the next few months? Do you have any you know, new launches planned or um, any, anything exciting in the world of Nathan Littleton going on? Yeah. So, I mean, I'm, I'm hoping to get back onto live stages before too long as well. That would be great. Once uh, events start opening up and, and people are more comfortable with that, that would be great. Uh, but for me, I'm I'm looking at, at creating online courses. So there's a program that I've been running for just over a year now called the Lead Magnet Intensive. Uh, we're going to have a couple more of those before the end of the year as well, which is really holding a group's hand through the process of creating a lead magnet uh, from start to finish so that you can take care of that first pillar that I talked about around building a list. Uh, and I'm currently writing the newsletter intensive as well. So for those people who don't necessarily want to uh, outsource or even do it themselves without some knowledge behind them. I think the accountability of a program like that is really important because you get the knowledge to be able to create a newsletter that's really going to work for you, but you're also held accountable to delivering it because that's Mm. a key thing as well is that's why the consistency often dips is because it's easy not to. We don't feel the tangible uh, response from someone saying, hey, where's your newsletter? I was expecting to receive it, but the silence is often deafening. (laughs) So yeah, the consistency and the accountability that comes with that is important. So the newsletter intensive will launch before the end of this year too. Oh, brilliant. That's exciting. And I guess the other thing, just thinking about accountability, uh, working with a, an outsourced partner, an external partner or expert also helps that. I was just thinking about you said you ask your clients to actually write in a Word document what they want to put in the newsletter. So in essence, you become an accountability partner for, hey, it's due. You don't need to make it look pretty, but I need some stuff. Otherwise, this isn't going to happen. That That's exactly it. Yeah. And it is it is all part of the service that if I haven't received something when I'm supposed to, there'll be a few nudges in there to make sure it goes out when it needs to climb. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like a little little email or a little nudge from Nathan, they go, ha. <laughs> <laughs> That's it, yeah. I've mastered the art of passive-aggressive writing, I think. <laughs> <laughs> oh, brilliant. I love that. I love that. So we've been chatting for about oh, just over 40 minutes now, uh, and we've sort of covered a whole gamut of things, you know, being a a very young entrepreneur, starting out in websites, going into email marketing, what your business does. So if if you were to leave like a nugget 
uh, imagine this was a newsletter and you wanted to leave a nugget for our Building Brand New listeners today. So what would be the message you'd like to leave for them? The message I would leave would be specifically about email marketing. And it is that wherever you're at with it right now, just start. So if you haven't done anything and you feel like you only have two people on a list, three people on a list, now is absolutely the time to start because you owe it to that audience to stay in touch with them and continue that conversation. But the content that you're sending out there is a service in itself. You're putting value out there that will, if it just helps one person to improve their life or their business, then it served a purpose that should make you feel good. But it also has those other benefits of, you know what, in six months' time, three months' time, even longer, the time might just be right for them. Uh, I've had people on my list and I've heard countless examples of others as well where someone might have sat on an email list and been receiving a newsletter for five or six years. And it might seem as though they haven't made any contact back or, or engaged in any way. But when the time is right for them, they've came out after five or six years and said, hey, I'm ready. I'm ready to work with you. And that's a a testament, I think, to where the top of mind process really comes into its own. Yeah, that staying top of mind, you just don't know. I think there's this whole concept I I like to talk about, which is our Lockhart's exchange principle. It's used in um, uh, forensic science and it's every contact leaves a trace. (laughs) And, And you don't know, you often don't know what trace you're leaving or what trace others leave on you. And I think that's a, it, it's a great way of thinking about email marketing and staying top of mind. You're just dripping, dripping, leaving a trace, leaving a trace, leaving a trace. And when people are ready, they'll step forward and say, ah, this is the place I feel comfortable. I trust this person because they've been consistent. They've been consistent and frequent and in touch and they've, they've delivered what they said they would. So That's- there's a lot of that trust equation that happens with email marketing done well, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. And uh, as you say, we never know what impact we might have. And it might just be something in the content that you send at any one time that just resonates with them and just pushes that button that that pushes them over line. And that's a really great thing. We don't know what that will be. So all the more reason to keep it consistent. Definitely. Definitely. So how, speaking of top of mind, Nathan, how, how do people get in touch with you? How do we make you top of mind building brand new? <laughs> You'd be more than welcome to connect with me on LinkedIn uh, or you can visit my website at nathanlittleton.co.uk. Brilliant. Well, uh, listeners, we'll put um, all of Nathan's details in the show notes. And um, Nathan, if you want to send us any details about um, the, the courses, the Lead Magnet Intensive and the Newsletter Intensive, we can also pop those in the show notes as well uh, so that people could get in touch with you about that. But uh, I don't know about the listeners, but I've certainly gotten a bit of a, a kickstart again about email marketing. <laughs> so um, I imagine we'll be having a little conversation offline in the not too distant future. Um, but thank you so much for um, joining us on Building Brand You and for for just you know sharing your your passion for business and your expertise and 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 your commitment to making a contribution, whether it's, you know, in business with email marketing or, you know, in the contribution you make with um, speakers and trainers at PSA. Well, thank you. It's been really fun. Listeners, I'll see you next time. 
thank you for listening to the Building Brand You podcast. I'm Kim Hayner, and if you've enjoyed this episode, please leave me a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Connect with me on LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. And for all the latest news and tips, become a member of the brand new Building Brand You Facebook group. I help people to accelerate their success by unlocking their greatest asset. If you'd like to find out more, please book in for a free 20-minute coaching call at calendly.com forward slash Kim Hamer forward slash BBY chat. Accelerate your results by unlocking your greatest asset, you.